Well, we do want to welcome you this morning to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. Thanks for being here. I know we've got some folks live streaming. We're going to turn our attention to Acts chapter 14, and we are actually coming to the halfway point this morning in the book of Acts. Uh, many of you may know Acts has 28 chapters, the way we've divided it up in our English Bibles anyway, and we're going to finish up with chapter uh, 14 uh, this morning. And I want to, to call this message Advancing the Message of Grace, and I want to begin with a, a question, and that is this. Why does the church exist? Why are we here on planet Earth as a church? I'm not asking, you know, what are some good things that churches do or we should do or can do. I'm asking, why are we ultimately here? In God's divine design, in His plan of the ages, what purpose does Christianity serve in the world? And to put it in context of this first century setting that we're looking at in this historical book of Acts, think of it this way. When Paul and Barnabas hopped on a ship, and Mark was with them at first, so when Paul and Barnabas and Mark hopped on a ship and headed for for Cyprus, the island, and then points west up in the region of southern Galatia. What were they doing? What was in their minds? You know, we talked way back at the beginning of this uh, series how, uh, or at the beginning of their missionary journey anyway, how the church in Antioch in Syria that was Paul's and Barnabas's home church commissioned them, sent them off, prayed for them. And, and I think sometimes we lose sight of what was really going on behind that? We think of it just sort of in a matter of routine because today, 2,000 years later, churches still send people off for mission trips. Uh, the big thing these days and for the last couple of decades anyway have been short-term mission trips, which I think is great. I've had the privilege of doing some of those. Um, <clears throat> some of you have too. Uh, and typically when you send someone out to do a one-week trip to... to do mission work. You'll pray for them, gather around them, sort of commission them, just the way the church in, in Antioch did. But it seems like there's a difference today between what the way we do that and, and what was really motivating Paul and Barnabas. Remember, this was early in the days of the church. The church was some 15 years old at this point. The church global, I mean. And what was in Paul and Barnabas's minds as they, as they left? What, what were they doing? Why were they doing what they were doing. I think sometimes we confuse the tasks of the church with the purpose of the church. And I've been thinking a lot about the purpose of the church because, of course, here at Plum Creek, which is our local church, remember the church globally is anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. They're part of the body of Christ global. But the local church is a local assembly of believers scattered throughout the globe that serves a unique purpose where they are in their unique setting. And, and Plum Creek Chapel is one of those. And we're celebrating 20 years of existence this uh, next month. And we're going to be kind of launching our, our vision statement and kind of talking about what, uh, what we believe are our priorities uh, going forward, hopefully for the next 20 years. Um, some time ago, we, we took uh, a survey and kind of listened to some of the things that many of you were saying and thinking and talked about as a leadership team what we do well and what we can do better, what we're not doing that we need to do, and we've kind of put together a vision statement that we will be uh, sort of unveiling at the 20th celebration. Uh, 
But, you know, even this morning as we were talking about the different announcements and we've got Bible studies coming up and unique events and activities and so forth, those all are tasks and they're all good things. But sometimes the good can be the enemy of the best. We want to make sure we keep it all in perspective and think about what is our purpose. And our purpose, you know, was uh, clearly outlined by the Lord Himself during His earthly ministry. For example, when He sent the twelve out, what did He send them out to do? To preach the gospel, Luke chapter 9. At His ascension, remember in Acts chapter 1, the beginning of this historical account, of, uh, written by Luke, kind of part two of Luke's gospel, as he tells us what happened after the death and resurrection of our Lord. He starts with the ascension, and what did Jesus say? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uh, uttermost parts of the earth. So the, the, the purpose of the church is to share the gospel. But as we talked about a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 10, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sins. And anyone who places their faith in Him can receive the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You can really state it in ten words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And whatever else we're doing, if the gospel isn't central... We've kind of lost sight of the purpose of the church. Paul and Barnabas got on that ship in in Acts chapter 13, as we read about, because they had something they wanted to tell people. There was an urgency to it. There was an importance to it. It was a matter of life and death eternally. Paul, of anyone, certainly understood the significance of forgiveness and eternal life. He had been an enemy of the church, as we know. He had been murdering Christians, persecuting Christians. He had not believed the gospel during Jesus' earthly ministry. He was a Pharisee, one of the unbelieving Jewish leaders. But he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. He trusted in Him, and his life was changed. And then he became the great missionary that we read about in the rest of the book of Acts. And then, of course, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote 13 letters that we call the epistles here in the New Testament, the Pauline epistles. He may have written Hebrews, which would make it 14 letters, but for sure he wrote uh, 13. And so, you know, they, there was something about the gospel and the, the great commission that got a hold of the early church and said, we've got to tell somebody. We need, we need to pass this message on. Now, oh, after 2,000 years, of course, uh, the church uh, is, has drifted further and further away from his word. Um, We've talked a lot about uh, in, in our ministry, but not by works, the apostate church and how that's a sign of the times, 1 Timothy 4.1, uh, uh, 2 Timothy 4.3, and many others. Uh, tomorrow morning, actually I'm doing my monthly live interview with Stand Up For The Truth Radio and David Fiorazzo, and, and he's asked me to talk about the liberalism creeping into the church and when that happened historically and how it happened and some of the manifestations of that in the church today. But it's getting harder and harder to find churches, at least in America, Uh, in fact, not at least in America, but since we are planted here in America, we'll think of America only, that are standing firm on the Word of God. Uh, Most churches resemble more uh, social clubs because they've drifted from their moorings. They've drifted from the the passion and the principle and the purpose that uh, Paul and Barnabas had when they got on that ship uh, and headed uh, west. 
Throughout the book of Acts, we've seen the church expand as the gospel is preached. Again and again, Luke tells us many believed and the Lord added to their number those who believed. Believed what? The message of the gospel. The message of grace. Uh, the last time we were in Acts, which was two weeks ago because I was out of pocket last week, but we saw Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel in southern Galatia. And Luke tells us they were preaching the gospel there. Verse 7. In today's text, and beginning in verse 21, we see that they preached the gospel again uh, in the cities that they had returned to in, in southern Galatia there, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. So preaching the gospel is the church's mission. And that's the reason why whatever else we do, it's not the only thing we're called to do. The Bible gives us a lot of instruction about how to do church. And unfortunately, many times we ignore that too. But, so it's not the only thing we're to do, but it's the preeminent thing that we're to do. If we're not preaching the gospel, we're not the church. And when the church loses sight of that mission or allows other good things to eclipse the primary reason that we exist, then we're not doing what God wants. The church does not exist simply to improve the quality of life for people on earth. Did you understand that? We're not here just to make life better for people on earth. As we talked about in the 9 o'clock hour, this earth is sold under sin, it's under the curse of sin, and it's all going to be destroyed someday. We're not here just to feed the hungry, clothe the poor, and right social wrongs. We're here for a much bigger eternal purpose, and that is to preach the gospel. We're here to bridge the gap between the temporal realm and the eternal realm by showing the world how to be reconciled to their creator. And yet, that's precisely what's happened in contemporary Christianity today. We've allowed good things to eclipse the gospel. So, according to the Bible, the gospel is first and foremost, the essence of the gospel is information on how a person can be rescued from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. That is the gospel. You know, some, sometimes, in fact, it, we've, we've so obliterated the essence of the gospel that even this statement gets a reaction from a lot of people today. And there's a common saying that is dead wrong, but yet it's kind of caught on in our culture today, and that is, you know, salvation is more than just fire insurance. No, it's not. That's precisely what salvation is. Jesus did not die on the cross and die a cruel death and take your punishment upon himself just so that you can be happy and healthy and wealthy and feel better about yourself and find purpose and contentment in life. He died because... You were on the road to a literal place of torment called hell, and he wanted to rescue you from that. Paul tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The word save means rescue or deliver in the Greek text. Deliver us from what? Not loneliness, not discontentment, you know, not poverty. All of those things are just a speck on the timeline of eternity. Again, they're not irrelevant. Obviously, the church is to have a positive influence on the world. We're to be shining like lights in this perverse generation. And to the extent that we're living out the new life in Christ that we have once we trust Him, then all of these things are going to come naturally. It's certainly true that those who know the Lord Jesus do find more meaning and purpose and happiness in life. Absolutely. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength, right? So, of course, there's implications and ramifications of becoming a born-again Christian. But priority number one is being rescued from the penalty of sin. 
And that's what the gospel is. But here's what's happened over time. Contemporary Christianity came along and added a large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God. I addressed this in, in a book that I wrote many, many years ago called Getting the Gospel Wrong. We, it's, we still have copies of it out there on the table. But I talk about the, the evolution, if you will, of the gospel presentation. And I use different children's ministries as an example, but I show how you know, 100 years ago, they were promoting gospel tracts that said how to have eternal life or how to go to heaven, you know, those types of things. And now they're, they're saying, you know, how to have Jesus as your new best friend, you know, and how to find contentment in life and, 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 and how to have a purpose-driven life and so forth, right? That's not the gospel. That's not necessarily wrong in and of itself, but it's wrong when it supplants the gospel as the priority. And then over time, we added another footnote about character development and another footnote about spiritual experience and eventually another one about social and global transformation. And this is really what has captured the apostate church today. It's this social gospel where instead of the biblical gospel being about how individuals can be rescued from the penalty of sin, it has become about social improvement. So we need to dig more wells and feed more hungry and all that. And somehow we pat ourselves on the back thinking that we're somehow fulfilling the Great Commission when we're not. Okay, those things, again, are important and they can lead, but that they're only valid if they lead to an opening to share the gospel. Otherwise, all we're doing is sending people to hell that are well-clothed and well-fed and have clean drinking water, right? So we need to keep it in perspective. Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Life on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. We need to keep the mission of the church in perspective. And it's not about the here and now. If we make the gospel mission and the gospel enterprise about the here and the now, then we're minimizing the importance of eternity. And, and we're not actually helping the world, we're hurting the world. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this uh, training series starting in September on how to just help you talk about the Lord just naturally because that's what people need to hear. Remember, it's not you or me that's going to get people saved. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. But if they're not hearing the gospel, they can't be saved. Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How can they hear without a preacher? So, and preacher there just means one who proclaims the good news. It doesn't mean vocational preacher. So, we need to be proclaiming the good news. That's what the gospel is. In fact, the Greek word is euangelizo, where we get the word evangelism. The upsilon, the U in Greek, is transliterated as a V in English, and it becomes evangelism. That's what it is, proclaiming the good news. You know, it's funny that there are no, there's no other good news that we are shy about sharing. You know, if you won $10 million in the lottery, I can pretty much guess that you'd probably tell somebody, wouldn't you? But you've got the answer to man's eternal sin problem. You need to tell people about it. See? And the devil definitely wants us to become preoccupied with the present. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He wants us to ignore the, the eternal significance of the gospel. But... Christ calls us to bring good news to an eternally lost and dying world, advancing the message of grace. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could be happy for the next 40 years or 50 years or 60 years till you die. He died so that you could have eternal life. 
That's why I died. It's about priorities. It's about priorities. Uh, I can't remember if I've shown this illustration before, but I don't know if you've seen this sign. Caution, this sign has extremely sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And then the fine print at the bottom says, oh, oh by the way, the bridge is out. Exit immediately. Well, I mean, it's certainly true that the sign is sharp and probably don't want to go up there and run your hand across it. But that kind of buries the lead a little bit, doesn't it? Isn't the issue here you're, about, you're barreling down a road at 40, 50 miles an hour and you're about to plummet off a cliff because the bridge is out, right? So the urgent, clear call of Christianity today is to share the gospel. In fact, Paul puts it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That Greek word implore is deamai. It's a very powerful word in Greek. It's used 22 times, and it means to beg or to plead or to passionately urge. It's the same word that was used by the, the man that had the uh, demoniac son. And when he said in Luke chapter 9, remember Luke's the same author here as Acts, the man said, Lord, I beg you to heal my son, for he is my child, my only child. I mean, think about it. If you had a son that was demon-possessed and you know, just completely mentally out of it, wouldn't you want that child to be whole and healed? That begging. It's also the same word, deamai, implore, translated here, that was used... Uh, in Luke chapter 8. Remember the demon-possessed man who the demon's name was Legion? And Jesus cast him out. And the demon, the, the text says in verse 28 of Luke 8, I beg you, I beg you, do not torment me. The demon knew whose presence he was in. That's the nuance here. That's the urgency we should have. Do we have that sense of urgency when it comes to sharing the gospel with others? So the purpose of the church is to advance this message of grace. And remember, grace and the gospel are essentially synonyms because the gospel is the good news of the grace of God. It's the good news that even though you are hopeless and helpless, sold under sin in this world, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to remedy your own situation, God's grace is available for you. It's a free gift. That's what grace means, free gift that you receive simply by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't be good enough. You can't be baptized. You can't keep the sacrament. Nothing you can do is going to merit you uh, righteousness before a holy God. You have to have Christ's righteousness given to you by faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith and faith alone. So when we talk about grace, we're just talking about the free gift of salvation. The good news that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So uh, if we go back to the missionary journey again, historically we're talking about an 18-month period from roughly April 48 to September of 49. This is recorded in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. And uh, they have an incredible evangelistic harvest as they leave. You can see on the right of your screen there, they leave Antioch. They head slightly southwest to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home island. And they end up on the western side of the island, uh, which is the capital city, Paphos. And then they head back north up to that region there of southern Galatia. And they begin to share the gospel in all of those cities. And then they 
turnaround after they get to Derby, and a lot goes on here. We've already talked about it, some of the persecution, and remember Paul was left for dead and stoned and all that. But through it all, they keep preaching the gospel, and then they come back, uh, and they go straight from Perga in southern Galatia, bypassing the island of Cyprus this time, and end up back at their home church in Antioch. In the immediate context here, verses 21 to 28, we're talking about their return home and the report that they give uh, to the home church. So I'm just going to give you a, a few observations. Again, this is historical narrative. We can see the principles that I'm going to be sharing uh, validated by other portions of Scripture quite clearly. But what do we mean when we talk about advancing the grace message? Well, as I've said, advancing the grace message involves preaching the gospel. That's first and foremost. And as I quoted earlier in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel, they returned. You know, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark did many things on this journey. John Mark at first until he abandoned the group. They healed people. They helped people. They challenged and defended the truth. They suffered persecution. But the underlying motivation, the, the driving force behind it all was to preach the gospel. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 15, Peter is uh, speaking to the Jerusalem council they held a big meeting. The early church leaders held a meeting in Jerusalem. And Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the church mission in a nutshell. We are to proclaim the word of the gospel so that people can hear it. And once they hear the gospel, hopefully they'll believe it. Now, as we've been talking about on Wednesdays, they're not forced to believe it, you know. Just as we had free choice in the garden and we chose to sin, we have free choice to receive the remedy for our sin. God doesn't force us to get saved. He makes it available. Whosoever will may come. It's a bona fide offer and it's a universal offer. But if you refuse the gift, then you'll spend eternity in hell and you have no one to blame but yourself. Okay? God doesn't send anybody to hell. God's trying everything He can to keep everyone out of hell. God wants everyone to be saved, uh, the Bible tells us. He, he's not willing that any should perish. But he's not going to force it on you. Paul, we know, was not ashamed of the gospel. And he tells us this at the beginning of his, first, of his letter to the Romans. Uh, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel is worth dying for. It's worth fighting for. It's urgent. But that's not the only thing advancing the grace message involves. We don't want to just share the gospel and then leave it there. We see from the account in Acts chapter 14 that it also involves providing doctrinal training. Notice, when they had preached the gospel of the city and made many disciples. As we've talked about often, salvation and discipleship are not the same thing. Salvation is receiving the free gift of eternal life paid for by the blood of Christ. Trusting in Jesus. Discipleship is growing in that faith. You know, like a newborn babe, we need to desire the pure milk of the word and we need to grow in our understanding of who God is. And how do we do that? Through His Word. He's told us who He is in His Word. And so this gives me another opportunity to uh, share with you this fundamental paradigm for spiritual growth that I believe if, if believers could really get their hands around would revolutionize the church. We would all be growing steadily day by day in our walk with the Lord. Uh, but instead, uh, most People think that spiritual growth and the discipleship process is about what you do. Now, you pick up just about any book on discipleship, 
in the Christian uh, bookstore or on Amazon or wherever you buy books, and they're going to say, okay, do this, do that, pray for seven minutes a day, and give this much to the church, and stop doing this, and start doing this, and it's just a list of do's and don'ts. That's not discipleship. Discipleship fundamentally is about trust. We grow in Christ the same way we become a part of the family of God in the first place, by faith. You're justified by faith and you're sanctified by faith. You're saved by faith and you grow in discipleship by faith. And so I call this the no trust, obey uh, model. Starts with knowledge, which leads to trust, which then leads to obedience. And so if we work backwards, it's a pretty simple concept. You don't obey what you don't trust. You don't obey what you don't trust. Every sin comes down to a lack of faith. Whatever is not of sin, whatever is not of faith is sin, Paul said. And every choice essentially comes down to faith. Just even in the mundane things in life. For example, if you didn't think, if you didn't believe that your car needs gas to run, you wouldn't put gas in your car. But you put gas in your car. Why? Because you've come to believe that without gas, with an empty tank, it ain't going anywhere. Every decision, is, are you trusting, what are you trusting in? And if we trust in God's Word and what the Spirit of God tells us, we're going to do what's right. We're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. If we trust in what the flesh says and what that proverbial angel, the demon on the shoulder is telling us, we're going to live in sin. So it starts with trust. But the fact is you don't trust what you don't know. The more you know somebody, the more you're going to trust them, right? If a perfect stranger came up to you and said, uh, you know, hey, come over here and behind this building in this dark alley and, you know, he's got a trench coat on and a mask and he looks like your proverbial dangerous person. You don't know them from Adam. You're going to say, get lost, buddy. But if your lifelong friend who you've known for 30 years, you bump into him at Walmart, you're going to give him a hug and you're going to sit and talk and, and you're going to trust them. Why? Because you know them, right? But you don't know what you don't study. You don't know what you don't study. So that's the reason doctrinal training is so important. That's the reason Paul and Barnabas went back through these cities after they'd seen these people come to faith in Christ and they began to instruct them in the Word of God. Now in that day, they had the Old Testament Scriptures, they had maybe Matthew's Gospel, but they were apostles. They were speaking revelatory uh, information. Uh, today, everything God wants us to know is contained in the Bible, the Word of God. Uh, everything we need for life and godliness is right here. So to live out this principle today, it's all about getting to know the Word of God. And churches today that ignore the Word of God are not helping people grow in their faith because you don't trust what you don't know and you don't obey what you don't trust. You with me? So it's no trust, obey. The more you know God, the more you'll trust Him. And you'll see that He's a good, good God. That He only wants what's best for you. That His ways are always right. That it always leads to great unpleasantness when you ignore Him. And it leads to great blessing when you follow Him. Even though life itself can be unfair. And, and, and life sometimes gives people a raw deal. If you know God, you're going to trust Him through it. Just like the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Just like uh, you know Paul did and Peter and other John and others in the early church that suffered persecution. Just like Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because if you know God, you know that God's grace is sufficient no matter what you're facing. You've got to know God. Well, how do you know him? Not by osmosis, not by some mystical 
transcendental meditation. You know God by getting in the Word of God. And it's got to be correctly handled, right? So Scripture bears this paradigm out. No, trust, obey. First of all, all Scripture is profitable. Profitable for what? For instruction in righteousness and so on and so forth. It helps us grow in our righteousness. It helps us live out the faith that we've experienced uh, when we trusted Christ. And then uh, we know that without faith it's impossible to please God. So in other words, sin, I don't know if, you, if you're catching what I'm trying to get at here, but sin is not a behavioral issue. And ever since the turn of the 20th century when the Carnegie's and the Rockefeller's and everyone else took over our country here in America and changed medicine and changed education and changed everything, we've been taught secular, humanistic, behavioral psychology. That's not the issue. That's just putting a Band-Aid on things, right? I can, I can make a dog behave right. That's not, that's not the answer. Sin is a trust issue. We sin because we don't trust God. If we trusted God, we would do what God's Word says. When we don't do what God's Word says, essentially we're saying, God, I know you said don't eat the big, shiny, delicious-looking apple, but I don't believe you. I think it looks really good, and I'm going to trust myself and eat the apple. You know, metaphorically, right? That's what all sin comes down to. Sin is a trust issue. Without faith, without uh, trust, it's impossible to please God. And then... Romans 6, Paul says in, in that great section about spiritual growth and how Christians should live out the new man in their life, chapter 6 through 8, he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. See, the problem is most people, when they teach on obedience, they start over here on the far right. And they just say, do this, don't do That's what legalism is all about, right? It has to do with what you wear, what you sing, you know, what kind of music you listen to, what you eat. That's, that's, that was beside the point. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. So it's, it's a ma matter of trust and following uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, so, the more you study the Bible, the better you get to know God. The better you know God, the more you're going to trust Him. And the more you trust Him, the more you're going to obey Him. And that's why Paul says in the very last letter that he wrote, study to show yourself approved to God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. And that's why part of advancing the grace message is to provide doctrinal training. So ask yourself, do you know more about God today than you did yesterday? You know, as I was working on this this week, I was challenged in my mind to think about, as I'm sitting in my office, what are some things about God that I either appreciate better or know that I really didn't know before, you know, as I'm studying the Word? Because I'm, I'm in the Word for a variety of reasons all the time. Preparing for an interview, writing books, giving conference messages, preaching at Plum Creek Chapel. But to what end? If it's all just academic, if I'm not getting to know God better, what's the point? So do you come to church to learn more about God from His Word? Or do you come simply to feel good and get goosebumps? See, doctrine is important. It's crucial, in fact. It's as crucial as the gospel. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of churches today that make fun of doctrine. I remember sitting at a conference one time, a very large a conference, and I was in the green room with some other uh, 
people. Um, they were all, a lot of them big, well-known speakers. I was just a nobody. But I was sitting at the table kind of preparing for my time on stage. And I remember hearing these guys talk about how doctrine is so divisive. And can't we all just get along? We need to stop drawing lines of distinction. We just need to welcome everybody and stop teaching doctrine. That's what they were saying. That's what most churches are today. But advancing the grace message also involves promoting courage and confidence. And this is particularly relevant for us today. It's been relevant for 2,000 years in different parts of the world. But for us, as we begin to face different struggles, we need to remember that part of the, the, the weekly assembly, part of the coming together of the church, is to strengthen the souls. Souls there just means lives. It's the word psuche, and depending on the context, it can mean the immaterial part of life or the material part of life, or it can mean the whole person. Here it just means strengthen the, the lives of the disciples. And they needed strengthening. Um, they needed to be reminded that you're going to have to go through many tribulations before the kingdom comes. Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That word strengthen is episteritzo. It means to cause someone to become stronger, obviously, the way we would think of the nuance in English. But it also has the idea to make to lean on. So who are we as a church as we advance the grace message, fulfilling our purpose in this world? Who are we helping people lean on? It's only used four times, episteritzo, all four of them in the, in the book of Acts by Luke. Um, but once we've shared the gospel and people have become born again, we need to encourage them in the faith. We need to constantly remind each other who to lean on and where to turn for trouble. That's what it means to strengthen the souls of the disciples. You know, for me, and, I, and I'm sure for you too, I've got certain people that I go to time and time again for strength, for advice, for counsel, for encouragement, you know. Um, my dad's been one of my biggest uh, mentors, uh, my, my biggest number one mentor all my life. And he's walked right with me through good times and bad, through struggles, through crises, through tragedies, both family and ministry related. And uh, every time I have a, a tough time, uh, guess who I call? My dad. And he'll usually, you know, slap me around a little bit, get me right on the back on track in my perspective and, and help me. Uh, why do you think God gives us spouses, right? So that when one spouse is down and discouraged, the other can say, come on, God is faithful, God is good, Let's, we'll get through this. And, and we balance each other out, right? So we need to promote courage and confidence. Then we need to pray for new believers. That's part of advancing the grace message. And certainly at Plum Creek we've made prayer our priority, but it goes on to say when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So certainly prayer has got to be uh, critical. And we need to pray for new believers and for each other. And then presenting a report. So they get back uh, to Antioch, and it says when they had come together, when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done. See, this is important. And that's why part of this series that we're going to do starting in September is going to give you the opportunity to come in in succeeding weeks and say, hey, how did it go this last week? Did you have an opportunity to talk about Jesus with somebody? Did you have an opportunity to make the good news clear using any of these tools that we're going to be teaching you? And let's just report on it. You know, and for, for many years we've had Not By Works Ministries, and that's been a, an auxiliary ministry to my academic ministry or pastoral ministry like it is now. And 
Whenever I go out, I always like to come back and give you a quick update on how uh, things went, you know. Um, uh, last week, in, in, we were in New Mexico, spoke three times at a new church I'd never been to before. They invited me to come in and do a, a conference, and it was amazing. Every, every conference and church is different. I've seen this for 25 years now, and they're all different because their setting is different, their context is different, uh, their culture is different. And they, many of them had never heard some of the stuff that I was talking about, about the end times. And they, they were very intrigued. It sparked an interest. And they came up and talked to me about the pastor. I had time to spend dinner Saturday night beforehand with the pastor and his wife. really feel like I have a new friend now. Because we, he was already saved, of course, but we, we were able to talk about the Lord, encourage one another, and see what God is doing. And in and, and doing that ministry not only advances the gospel, which is the, the mission of not by works, the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel, but it also gives me an opportunity to see how the Spirit of God is moving in other parts of the country. So it gives me perspective. Otherwise, we get tunnel vision. But we, we see that the disciples came back and they, they gave a report. So you need to talk with others about the message. So the takeaway is this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.21, Paul says, it, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It may sound foolish to the sin-stricken world that you can get something as valuable as eternal life absolutely free, paid for by the blood of Christ. You just receive it by faith. That may sound foolish, but that's what pleases God, and that's His plan. So our prayer is that Plum Creek Chapel will always preach the gospel clearly, accurately, and urgently. Uh, and I, my prayer is that each of us individually in this room or watching the live stream will take this to heart and see what we can do in just in the natural course of life to talk about the Lord, to plant those seeds. See, it's not about getting conversions or getting people to sign a card or make a, some type of commitment. Salvation isn't a commitment. It's about faith. It's receiving the free gift. Share the gospel and leave the results up to the Holy Spirit. So are we advancing the message of grace? And if so, how? And how can we do that better? So we're going to close out now uh, with prayer, and then we will transition uh, into the Lord's Supper. So as I'm praying, if the men that I've asked would come forward and uh, help uh, serving. And as we take the Lord's Supper, which we do every month here at Plum Creek Chapel, why don't you just really get alone with the Lord? Forget about the person sitting next to you. Just really think about God's grace in your life and ways in which you can talk about that grace uh, with others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, just uh, the reminder of really what it's all about. When we strip away all of the just uh, corollaries and tangential things that the church does, many of which are good and part of the church as well, it comes down to sharing the gospel. Lord, may you raise up men and women and young people with a, a courage and, and a, the ability to articulate the gospel clearly, accurately, and urgently, urgently every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.